This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So uh, we're looking at uh, Bhante's system of spiritual life, system of spiritual practice. And the first day I was trying to connect us with the overall purpose, even in a, way, in a way you might say the overall mood of what we're doing, connecting with uh, something that goes beyond us as individuals, something living uh, that can be felt but that is not an entity. Mm. And the second day I uh, talked about the, the, the powers that we draw on, the, the forces that we use in order to live out our Dhamma lives. I talked about the force of karma, the forces of karma you could say, and I talked about the forces of, of dharma, karma niyama and dharma niyama, these conditioned processes within the overall uh, schema of conditioned processes that we draw on in order to live our dharma lives. So we come now to what we actually do to activate those forces. How do we use karma and dharma in order to transform ourselves so that uh, we can transcend ourselves? That's the question that broadly we're answering during these days. And uh, what Sangharakshita has asked us to do is to look at our lives under five broad headings. Look at our, our practice under five broad headings. And not just our meditation practice, I, I really stress. We so often speak of practice, and what we mean is what we do in meditation. But practice needs to be going on in every sphere of our lives, at every instant of our lives. And uh, meditation is simply, perhaps you could say, the, uh, the most conscious and direct application of spiritual effort, or non-effort, to your evolution, to your transformation. But you need to be doing it all the time. You need to be doing it in every area. So each of the, these aspects that I speak about over the next days, I want you to be thinking about uh, in terms of every area of your life. Of course, what you do in meditation. And uh, there are meditation practices that exercise each of these five aspects. Although in a way... Every meditation calls upon all five. But some meditations stress one aspect, some another. It's very important to have experience of all five so that you've got a, a broad and natural feeling for each of these. You're able to sense them in the midst of your life. They're not thought, they're felt. So yes, you need to be exercising them in meditation, you need to be exercising them in, in your study, listening to the Dhamma, talking about the Dhamma, bowing before the Buddha. In every area of your life, the, the, of, of your formal practice, these five need to be present. They need to be present even more urgently, you might say, in uh, the detail of your life. What you do at work, what you do in your home, whether it's on your own, with a family, in a community, whatever it is, where is, where are these five aspects in play in that situation? This is the question I'm, I'm asking you to uh, reflect upon under each of these headings. So you all, I think, are aware of these five aspects, at least broadly, I hope you are. Uh, the aspect of integration, of positive emotion, of receptivity, even spiritual dhammic receptivity, uh, spiritual or dhammic death, spiritual or dhammic uh, rebirth. And today I'm going to focus on uh, integration. Th this is probably a subject on which I can rely on you all having quite a bit of study, I hope. <laughs> uh, presumably you've all 
studied the Noble Eightfold Path, the, and you've looked at uh, Samyak Shmruti. You've listened to uh, anyway. You've listened to lots of lectures or read lots of things that Bhante's had to say. You've read Living with Awareness, for instance. I hope you know the broad outlines of what we mean by integration. And Bhante, in the the, the talk that is lies in the background of this, which is called the System of Meditation. He speaks of it as mindfulness and recollection, and essentially about the uh, integration of all the different aspects of the psyche. And that's fundamentally what it's about. So I, ca- I can pretty much take for granted that you've got a broad idea of what it's meant, what is meant. So what I want to do today is to take up a, a number of perhaps in a sense rather miscellaneous points. Interestingly, when one's talking about integration, I haven't got a sort of single integrating theme and you'll have to sense something deeper behind them, which is really my point. Uh, uh, integration is a matter of, of, of a sort of, of a sense rather than of a, a, think, a thought. That's why I've had to make myself a few notes because the theme doesn't sort of uh, uh, naturally hang everything together except in a a rather deeper sense. So, uh, yes, you're familiar enough with what we mean. You know that mindfulness of breathing is the emblematic practice of integration as far as meditation goes, although in, uh, mindfulness of breathing is more than just integration. In a sense, it's positive emotion, uh, receptivity, death and rebirth if it's done fully and properly. But uh, it's most characteristically about integrating all the different bits of you. You know, you, you're meditating away, your mind wanders, you bring it back, and so on, until you experience at least something of this very wholesome, integrated samadhi, which is jhana, where all the energies are flowing together in a, uh, a stream of mental events which are not particularly uh, retiocinatory. They're, they're not particularly conceptual, there may be some element of that, but there's a, a deep sort of feeling, uh, you could say, which is integral and uh, consistent and steady. So yes, mindfulness of breathing is the most characteristic meditation practice, although you could use any sort of focus as a way of developing integration as a primary basis. Mindfulness in the sense of walking mindfully, mindfulness of the body, all of that is characteristically a mode of developing integration. And you need to be doing those. And you need to have quite a high degree uh, of practice of those so that integration takes place more widely in your life. But it's not enough, perhaps even in certain sense, uh, uh, not the main way in which most of us will find ourselves integrating ourselves. So, let me come down to uh, a kind of definition of integration. What are we basically doing when we're trying to integrate ourselves? What we're fundamentally doing is taking full responsibility for our, our karmic agency. That's what integration fundamentally means. It means being able to uh, accept responsibility for the volitional acts body, speech and mind, that you engage with, you engage in. So your, your karma means taking possession of your will. Sorry, integration means taking possession of your will. Otherwise what happens is that we're always willing, but all those different piece, bits and pieces of, of willing sort of almost belong to separate personalities. <laughs> I've just been uh, reading, for obscure reason, uh, reasons, uh, an account of the, uh, the Great Reform Bill in uh, 18, the 1830s, fast in 1832, as a very good book by, um, oh, what's her name? Lady, what's her name? Antonia Fraser. Antonia Fraser. It was very, very good. just come out recently. Very amusing. Anyway, there's one of the leading figures in, uh, in the reform process, uh, Lord Duncannon who was apparently had a split personality, I suppose we would say. She doesn't call it that. But you just could not rely on what he'd be like when he turned up at a cabinet meeting. 
Sometimes he'd be charm and vigour and intelligence and sometimes he'd be almost crazy with irascibility. And the odd thing was that the sort of more pliable, uh, more effective Duncanon knew nothing about the other one. <laughs> so he never apologised or anything like that. He seemed really surprised that people were frightened of him. Well, that is, I would say, integration, uh, disintegration. This is not what you're trying to do, just to be clear. <laughs> uh, so presumably, in a sense, you could say, you know, Duncanon 1 and Duncanon 2 didn't really know each other. Uh, so that when he was in his um, you know, astute political m- mode, he'd kind of forgotten about the, the, uh, the off-the-handle uh, Duncanon, uh, and vice versa. Well, to be frank, don't we all know a little bit of this? And at times, uh, you can be even quite surprised that people see you in a certain way. Uh, you don't see yourself like that, but when you think about it, you think, Ah, yeah, I can understand that because in a different sort of mode, I'm like that. For you, it's just a sort of temporary aberration. But for other people, it's a a definite sort of uh, potentiality, potential personality emerging from you, which they rather dread, perhaps, or long for, as the case may be. So that's perhaps rather extreme. But in a way, in less extreme manners... Probably most of us have these sort of vagaries, different directions that are pushing and pulling within us, and which often don't know each other. You know, it's been talked of in some forms of modern uh, therapeutic language as subpersonalities, and that perhaps captures it pretty well. But they become, can become entirely autonomous in cases of, uh, of madness, really. What we call madness, which is just another kind of normal sanity of course yes so so integration means really taking possession of your moral agency accepting responsibility for the choices you make the actions that you perform in the mental states you get into recognising that uh, whether immediately or more distantly and indirectly you are responsible for them. You may not be immediately able to do something about them, but you can do something about doing something about them. Sometimes even doing something about doing something about doing something about them. It sometimes is as indirect as that. But uh, you accept full responsibility for yourself as a moral agent. And uh, probably everybody needs to do much more work on this. It's the sort of thing where you you lose your temper and you blame the other person for making you do so. In in India, I've I've got a rich assemblage of of, uh, examples taken from uh, Marathi language, for instance, where, say, you you don't... uh, you, You are not late. Lateness happens to you. That's the way you say, I, I was late. You say, lateness happened to me. I think you can probably see a problem with, with moral agency there. Because you are late. Where's Surita? <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's uh, something in your power to do or not do. Not, not always, of course. It doesn't happen to you. And, you know, saying that they made me. It, 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 it's usually not true. It's usually something you have done. You know, sparked off by what they've done. So in, in, in very immediate ways, we need to take full responsibility for what we do, which means not blaming others, even <coughs> if they have acted unskillfully, not blaming them for our reactions. Of course, if we react to somebody else who does something uh, very unble- unpleasant or very unskillful to us, it's sort of understandable that you react but it's not excusable, if you see what I mean. You, you can be kind of, uh, in, your, in your mother mode, you can be tolerant of yourself, and in your father mode, you can be a bit more morally strict, if that distinction works anymore in the modern world. You, you can be empathic with yourself for your, uh, your reaction and uh, critical of yourself for the moral lapse, if you see what I mean. You need to do both. So, yes... Uh, 
Integration means fundamentally taking full responsibility for your karmic agency, both in the present, for what you will, what you're doing now and will do in the future, and as it were in relation to the past, for what you have done and its consequences. This doesn't mean guilt. It means the, the in, in the sense of ir- irrational guilt, of um, feeling, um, you know, sort of all your confidence going, and uh, your, your your sense of self-worth <coughs> and so forth going because you've acted unskillfully. You've done something that that harms. It means a, a recognition that you have done so, uh, a regret, even remorse, and a uh, a full attempt to confess to uh, make amends and to uh, make sure you don't do it again. So taking full responsibility for what you've done, taking full responsibility for what you're doing. So you see why? Because we're trying to use the power of karma in order to grow. So if you don't take possession of karma, it can't work for you. Do you see what I mean? You're driven merely by instinct and whim and by momentary inspiration. So you need to put quite a bit of effort into taking possession of, of your karmic agency so that uh, you aren't simply driven by the, the, the winds of unconscious conditioning, by the, the whim of, of the moment, uh, by the pressure, the oppression of the moment. Uh, you're able to increasingly sense your responsibility in uh, every situation you find yourself in. The responsibility for what you do with your mind, your tongue, which is of course the most difficult thing, and your, your actions, your bodily actions. This is fundamentally what integration means, I believe. It's not about walking very slowly, feeling the contact of your foot with the ground, although that's very helpful. It's not fundamentally about watching your breath, although that is, you could say, essential in one form or another. It's about gaining a stronger and stronger sense of yourself as a moral agent and of your moral responsibility. Uh, A sense that as a a self-conscious agent, uh, you can affect the world around you and affect your own future unfoldment. So that's essentially what integration means. But if you begin to experience that sort of moral agency, what you begin to find is that as as you try to develop that kind of moral agency, what you find is that there needs to be some integrating principle that lies behind all the actions that you perform. Otherwise your sense of agency is discontinuous. There are so many pressures and and, uh, pushes and pulls within us. We've got so many forces at work within us. Sexual attraction, desire for glory, desire for a quiet quiet life, uh, liking this, not liking that, likes and dislikes of all kinds on many, many levels. And they drive us along, a bit like a dog, you know, going for a, a, a walk. It's just driven by its nose. Uh, and you see a dog, it, it, it's not carrying out any sort of purpose. It's just following the, uh, the whim of its nose. It seems to get through life okay, I suppose, but if you want to be a dog, that's fine. Uh, and often our lives are like that, just, just one thing, then another thing, then another thing. And you can often have the sense of discontinuity in your life. I remember this in my own... Uh, younger days, as, as a terrible affliction, a sense that nothing added up. I'd sort of set out to do something, and then something else would take over. I'd be driven in another direction. And I couldn't sort of get a, a stable purpose. Or if I did get a stable purpose, it didn't really engage the whole of me. And something was left out. And uh, I wasn't able to sort of suppress everything else about me in order to drive myself towards that. Different people are constructed differently. Some people are able to do that. They're able to, as it were, privilege a single range of desire at the expense of the rest of their their desires. Others are not. 
converges and diverges. I've heard this talked about as a different sort of cast of mind, the sort of mind that concentrates and the sort of mind that diversifies. Maybe it's uh, something to do with character in that way. But I certainly myself had this feeling that there were so many desires, so many pushes, so many pulls within me, and I couldn't really feel uh, fully engaged with anything. I'd do a bit of this, then I'd do a bit of that, then a bit of that, and at the end of the day feel really quite disappointed. I remember Sangrachita saying he thought that one of the reasons why people often went to bed very late and found it difficult to get up in the morning was because at the end of the day they didn't really feel satisfied. They'd not really done anything that fully sort of gratified them or fulfilled them. So you sort of stay awake in the desperate hope that something satisfying will happen. You know, with your computer open, etc. I think it's a whole interesting new area of exploration of uh, integration and technology, especially uh, um, technology with a screen, as it were. But yes, you, 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 you often have that sense of a discontinuity, disconnection, the different bits and pieces of your life not quite adding up. Or you have the experience of being able to focus very strongly, perhaps a bit narrowly, and something really being left out in your private moments, recognising that there's some sort of void, some lack, something even crying out for attention. So the, the, uh, the skill of integration is in, is in finding a deep enough and engaging enough organising principle uh, which can absorb all the energies of your personality as they emerge. Uh, I remember some very, very exciting discussions with Bhante here at Pamaloka, in fact, uh, up in Surita's room with the tartan carpet and without the detritus of Surita's life. Um, the very highly organised detritus of Bhante's life. And he was talking about what, what he called the need to discover your, your own myth, which is a sense of something that you are pursuing that cannot ever be fully put into words, uh, that is worked out in your, in, in your life, in your quests, in your longings, in your little attempts at this and attempts at that. There's something you're trying to work out, something that's much bigger than you, that you're not even really aware of, but that you're, you're gradually trying to find, discover if you will only give yourself the freedom to do so. He said it was a bit like as if you're weaving a, 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 a huge carpet. You know, I think he had in mind uh, you know, a, a, a wonderful Persian carpet or something like that with very rich colours and uh, a very complex and beautiful pattern. But all you can see is the present part of the pattern you're working on. And you can't see how that fits into anything else. You can just see this particular flower, this particular tendril and these particular leaves. You can't see how it relates to this, uh, these shapes that you formed uh, the other day. But that you know that it does relate. And you have a sense that there's an underlying unity to it all. And uh, your, your, your whole life is an attempt to body forth that uh, inchoate process that you cannot really pin down, narrow down to any particular form of words. And he said that uh, the, the greatest gift that you can have is to find a, a sort of public myth that allows your private myth to unfold itself. And he saw the, 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 uh, the Tree Ratna movement as uh, a, a, a kind of public myth of that kind, that, that collectively we all are seeking to body forth something that is coming from within us, but it's also being expressed through everybody else. And uh, it's capable of containing a very large, wide range of different processes, you could say. So this organising principle is not necessarily anything 
that can be spelled out. It's more of a feeling than anything. More of a deep sense of uh, a flow. That, that's very much the way I experience it in my life. A, a, an increasing sense that everything hangs together and that uh, whatever I do, there's an underlying purpose that it relates to. Even if sometimes I'm aware in the negative that I've lost it or that what I'm doing doesn't relate to that. But the sense of it becomes stronger and stronger and more and more a part of my conscious experience and identity even. That's what you, you're, uh, you're trying to do in going for refuge. Going for refuge is that process of trying to body forth a naturally unfolding psychic uh, process within you uh, which is met by, contained by and allowed to express itself through the public myth of the Dhamma and its manifestation in the, in the Tree Ratna order. So uh, one needs this single organising principle in, in one's life, which is not single in the sense of uh, narrow. It, it's, it's a container that's vast enough and deep enough to, uh, to receive all of you as that unfolds. The image that uh, Bante was speaking to when he talked about this was, uh, it, it came from a song of Milarepa. Milarepa sees a shepherd with sheep trying to herd them on a mountainside or a mountain pasture using a dog. It's a very familiar to me, uh, scene to me. I live in Wales, surrounded by sheep. And you know, one of the great wonders is seeing the, the, the shepherd out with his dogs shouting at them in the coarsest Welsh imaginable. And the dogs, uh, which seem to love it, very skillfully just bringing all the sheep together and taking them through a, a, a narrow uh, passageway. And what, 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 you, what you see is that when the, the farmer takes out a young dog, he usually takes them out with a, an older dog, and the older dog teaches the younger one. Usually uh, there's a, a bitch that is a sort of trainer of all the rest. But what the younger dog doesn't know what to do. It just goes mad when it sees the, dog, the, the sheep. And it just chases them. And they cause scatter. You know, so I've seen the farmer get all his sheep just about up to the, the gateway he wants them to go through. And then the young, young dog just loses control and dives in and they all scatter. Because sheep are, are machines for going in the wrong direction. <laughs> Mind you, you should see cows. They're even better at it very interesting herding sheep but that's another question so Milarepa <laughs> well makes an analogy we are like that, that, sh that, that shepherd with the sheepdog and uh, the sheep we want everything to go in a single direction but all these little autonomous bits and pieces all these sheep some of them more woolly than others they, 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 they just want to go where they want to go you know sheep will naturally spread out uh, they're, they're territorial animals, interestingly. Don't get me going on sheep. <laughs> I spent six, eight months at a solitary retreat studying sheep. I learned more about sheep than about myself. <laughs> Mind you, not that different. <laughs> but uh, yes, the, 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 it's as if we, all our sanskaras, all our volitional activities are like a flock of sheep. There needs to be... It's not that you try to homogenise them into a sort of super sheep. Um, you know, uh, the kind of <laughs> a, a mammoth sheep <laughs> oh my goodness don't even think about it <laughs> um, the amount of wool is horrendous is that the, the, these, um, all these separate volitions need to be sort of integrated by a more intelligent uh, a, a more um, agile, a, a more vigorous dog, which rounds them all up. And uh, well, the the the, the uh, analogy that, uh, or the, what the message that uh, Bante drew from this was that going for refuge is like the sort of principle that organises all the different aspects of your of your uh, uh, volition, so that they form a single stream. And as time goes by, they uh, they become more and more 
amenable and more and more easily directed. Although to begin with, it's, it's quite difficult and they'll run all over the place. But the, the organising principle of going for refuge to the three jewels is big enough, deep enough, uh, in, engaging enough to draw all those energies into it. So yes, that every, every action you take, every volition you make, is somehow related to that larger, deeper purpose. It's interesting, Bhante said uh, on another occasion in this sort of connection that he thought that he, his personality naturally was so sort of complex and varied that if he'd not come across the Dhamma, he thinks he probably would have uh, been classified as insane. He thought that the different forces within him would have led him into uh, contradictions and uh, uh, behaviours that were you know, so apparently disturbed that people would have felt it necessary to <laughs> take him into care. Some might think that might have been better for the world, but I don't. Uh, he feels that this, that the, that, that the, he, he, in a sense, had to go for refuge to the three jewels. Otherwise, these varied elements of his personality would just have split him in two, maybe in ten. And perhaps, in a way, we're all a bit like that. Maybe we're not as marked as Sangrakshita in terms of uh, uh, the, the different, different elements of personality. But uh, we've all got a range of different forces at work within us. Anybody who's read his memoirs will remember that famous debate between Sangharakshita and 1 and Sangharakshita 2. Sangharakshita 1 who wanted to you know, practice the Dharma, meditate, go on retreat, be a monk. Sangharakshita 2 wanted to lie under trees uh, and write poetry. We won't go on. But you, know, you had to integrate those two into the larger, deeper understanding of what going for refuge meant. So I think the major issue for us is to integrate all these different forces in our lives into uh, going for refuge to the three jewels so that our lives are increasingly a continuous flow and that our m sense of moral agency is, uh, is continuous. It isn't split up or broken up or unconscious in certain respects. Wonderful, do you think, of being able just to go through every moment of every day feeling that everything you do fits into a single pattern and that everything you do is connected to a single momentum, a single flow and that uh, you know the extent of your own moral agency and you know the limits of your moral agency. Perhaps just as important to know those limits as it is to know the extent. That is what it is to be integrated. It's the sense of flow. I came across recently a, a, a book by uh, a Hungarian uh, a writer. What's his name? Chishan Mahalyi. It's called Flow. And it's, uh, it's a, 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 um, uh, I, I believe, a psychologist. And uh, he did research on what people considered made them fulfilled, made them feel fulfilled. And uh, he, he talked to a wide range of people, athletes, successful artists, politicians, uh, working people, a wide range of people. And he said what, what uh, they all reported amounted to a, 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 a having a sense of flow, that all your actions connect and move in a single direction which you're fully behind that is what gives the sense of fulfilment he said so uh, integration is that sense of flow and it's not easy it's hard won it's a struggle because the human personality is a quite complex mechanism and in our own culture it's perhaps more complex than uh, it's ever been before. I find it very interesting working in India where people have a much simpler psychic structure. They have their own problems. He's not looking at me. <laughs> He's quite complex actually. 
um, but, but people, you know, the culture, they're, they're, they're loved by their mummies much more and um, not expected to, you know, they're hugged by everybody in the community from a very early age. They're part of a, a community. Of course, it's not applies to everybody by any means. So that there's so much, you probably get the same in Mexico, that the sort of intact family structure. But here we've got much more complex uh, social circumstances, cultural circumstances, which make for some interesting uh, richness, but also for greater complexity, more difficult to become aware of all the, more, the, 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 the different bits. So, how do you do it? How do you go about it? Well, of course, it's by practicing everything that we teach, uh, and probably a bit more. Of course, the, f the first thing that that's, that's perhaps that, that needs attending to is the context of your life. I think we often overlook this. In the early days, there was a strong emphasis on the context in terms of uh, communities, right, livelihood, businesses, etc. And of course, that has uh, a great validity. But it's not the way most people choose to live these days, and uh, for better or worse. Uh, it's, it's, it's the fact of things. But you need to make sure whatever your circumstance, even if it is a community or right livelihood business, you need to make sure that it really does support your integration. That it really does enable you to flow. So that you all the different elements of your context both support you and allow you to express this single underlying purpose. I think one of the most painful experiences you can have is of your context uh, out of key with your sense of underlying purpose. And that can happen in a community or right now in your business as much as it can happen in a, in an, uh, a family or, or, or uh, on your own or whatever. But uh, where you feel that there's a discord, a dissonance, a mismatch between what you aspire to, what, what really matters to you, what you, you feel engaged with, and the context you're in. It's a kind of hell. And it's a hell that probably the great proportion of humanity is condemned to. They don't even think about the possibility of really being engaged. It, it's again one of the, the, the horrifying experiences in India where uh, a caste-based society means that people do what they do because they have to. And where a, a still strong um, traditional society means that parents decide what profession children take up, even if it's completely unsuited to their temperament and inclination, still like that. And you get sort of often in, in working situations a, a dullness, a half-heartedness, a, uh, a kind of lack of responsibility, a lackadaisicalness uh, that is quite horrifying. You get equivalent here because the class system, it's a bit better than it used to be, but you still get that sort of sense of people doing what they don't want to do because there's no choice. So, uh, and, or, or people trapped in marriages that they don't want to be in. Again, my, my strongest experience of this in India, uh, women who never wanted to have children, who didn't want to get married, just forced into an Indian marriage in the traditional sense where although it's a lot better than it used to be, they're not free to be an individual. And they're forced into roles and uh, ways of life that just aren't really them, uh, really engage them. And uh, it's a pitiful sight, a kind of blanking out of the uh, intelligence of awareness that takes place in that context. So we need to make sure that our context is uh, able to sustain our deep purpose and uh, for many that's going to be a real struggle because you've got responsibilities you've taken on responsibilities that you must fulfil you can't just walk away from because that itself would be a, um, a contradiction to your deepest principles but uh, there's a lot of work to be done to transform both your own attitudes within those situations to make them into environments where you can have an integrated flow of energy and to transform them so that they can contain that. 
which means, so for instance, uh, uh, communication with those who surround you, whether in your family or at work, so that you can change the, the mode of it, change your relationship to it, which is often a, a ticklish, not to say explosive, enterprise. But you need to do it. Otherwise, there will be a blunting of your energies, uh, which unless you can really find a very much deeper purpose, uh, will uh, mean you cannot take full karmic responsibility and exercise this power of karma. So yes, we need to be working on our, uh, our working life, our social life in the sense of the people who immediately surround us, the home life, the friends that we have, and our cultural life, kind of things that we do for uh, entertainment, for relaxation, for, re for, for enrichment. All of those need to be transformed so that they become fitting channels for our uh, th this deeper sense of meaning and purpose. And it's a big issue. I think it's one of the major issues that you need to be dealing with in coming up to ordination. You need to be engaging with that and, and getting your Kalyanamitras and friends to help you engage with your circumstances so that they can enable you to uh, uh, express yourself fully. Otherwise what happens is Buddhism becomes a sort of private hobby. You live otherwise as a normal citizen, a good citizen I hope, but with this private hobby of Buddhism and a little bit of meditation on the side of it. And in a way that means it's never Buddhism. Buddhism is uh, not Buddhism, the Dhamma is not the Dhamma, unless it's transforming you, transforming your life, unless you're becoming more and more integrated in yourself and in your relations with the world around you. So, yes, we need to address our contexts. We do that, we do that of course, especially in communication. I think communication is one of the most powerful tools of integration that we've got. And I don't mean necessarily communication in the sense of talking. We're prone to talk about ourselves far too much. There's no subject, no topic more absorbing than oneself. You know, I often find I like giving talks, but the talk I like to give best is a, an autobiography. Because it's about the most important subject I know. Me. Uh, and so often our communication is sort of me taking my concern, my turn to um, uh, uh, externalise my self-obsession and then giving you a chance to, if I can't avoid it. Um, uh, and that's what a lot of communication is. But communication needs to be a sort of engagement with each other, not just in words, but in, with energy, if you like. Engagement through work, Engagement through being together, engagement through uh, doing meditation together, engagement in silence, as well as through direct exploration of what's going on. You know, after our post our post Freudian age, sort of thinks that everything has to be talked out, and it, it's a good thing. It does help, but it's not the only thing by any means. But in communication, we come to know ourselves more fully or more deeply. And we come to, especially with spiritual friends, be able to express <coughs> aspects of ourselves that we've not been able to uh, discover in other contexts. So a very important tool of uh, integration is communication. Of course, solitude is also another very important tool of integration. Because in solitude you find what, where you're really at. You know, I remember I went on a, an eight-month solitary five years ago, so I was completely alone for five months, more or less alone for eight. And I, I went to it with great longing, uh, thinking, oh, wonderful, I'll be able to relax and just be free. And of course, what happens after a bit, uh, you realise you've absolutely no idea why you're there. All those aspirations to meditate and all the rest of it. Well, there's nobody you can see whether you're meditating or not, so you don't have to. And, um, you know, you're left with the one person who you can't avoid. This sort of voice in your head, this, this you. 
and well, you get a horribly deep encounter with yourself, which can be very salutary indeed, and you know, it can lead to something more. So yes, friendship, community, discovering yourself in relationship, as well as discovering yourself apart. All of that helps you to unravel yourself, to see what pattern there is that's emerging, so that you get a clearer, and I- clearer idea of what is really coming out of you and how that fits with the world around you. A very important aspect of uh, communication as a, a means of uh, integration, uh, especially integration in the sense of uh, taking possession of karma, is confession. Uh, because in confession you're fully recognising your karmic responsibility. You're owning up. And you're doing it in a very positive way. You're not beating yourself up, you're not uh, abasing yourself, you're not grovelling, you're not asking for, uh, uh, you know, for absolution or anything like that. You say, this is what I did, I really wish I hadn't, but I did it, please, you know, I confess. And then you're saying, and I did it because of this, this and this. I'm not excusing it on those grounds, but these are the forces that were at work. And I will try to deal with those forces in the future. And you're saying... Sorry to those who you've harmed. You're giving back what you took without really being entitled to. You're going and unsaying what you said that you shouldn't have said, and so on. Uh, You're putting to rights what you've done. Confession is more than just saying, I did it. It's actually recognising what you've done, doing something about not doing it again, and putting it right. Otherwise, you can't really be said to confess if you don't actually do what is possible to put it right. Sometimes it's too long ago and you can't. So, yes, uh, in communication, we're likely to, with, with spiritual friends, that is, with people who are also trying to take personal responsibility, trying to integrate themselves, we're likely to gain a deeper and deeper understanding of ourselves and a deeper and deeper sense of wholeness and, and to understand more and more fully this integrative momentum that underlies everything that we're doing, whether we're conscious of it or not, half conscious of it usually, we can become more conscious of it in our interaction with others, as we can also, of course, in our practice. But I want to conclude with uh, a, uh, a reflection on integration that I don't believe has really been gone into before, at least not in my hearing, maybe others have done it and I haven't noticed. I, I'm interested in how karma relates to the other niyamas. You know, we've talked about five niyamas. Dharma niyama is of course uh, that, that uh, set of conditions that arise when you decisively let go of uh, self-clinging. Although it's also present within your, uh, your experience uh, even now. And of course, responsibility there will come on to much later when we come on to spiritual death, spiritual receptivity, death and rebirth. It essentially consists in uh, honouring that sort of uh, pull, that sort of tug within you, which is this inchoate pattern that's trying to express itself through you, if this is not getting too complicated. Well, it is, even if it is too complicated. So, yes, you you, you take karmic responsibility for allowing that dimension to come into your life more and more fully, more and more strongly. And enough said about that for the time being. That's just a a hint. But there are three, as it were, lower niyamas. Uttu niyama, that is the physical, inorganic, uh, physics, chemistry, etc., there's the bija niyama, which is uh, the uh, biological dimension, the organic dimension, the vital dimension. And there's the, uh, the mano niyama, which is the, uh, at the level of um, you know, the, 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 the mind as a sort of mechanism, you could say, as, as the, the mechanisms of uh, um, perception, of instinct, of uh, uh, flight, fight, all of that. How do we take karmic responsibility in relation to them? And uh, personally, I find this consideration extremely helpful and uh, 
Maybe it's something that's been obvious to everybody else and I've just sort of overlooked. Obviously, you can lump, in a way, in terms of yourself, you can lump Uttu and Bija Niyama together. They really mean the body, the physical body. And uh, what taking karmic responsibility here means, accepting responsibility for your body. You know, that you've got one, that it is the vehicle for your, your, your spiritual development. This is spoken of often in the Buddhist tradition. It, giving it what it genuinely needs to that end and not letting it dominate you. Uh, not letting it so preoccupy you that you essentially become uh, the servant of your body, which is what a lot of people do. So it means being aware of your body. In, in Buddhist tradition, kaya gata sati, uh, mindfulness connected with the body, is the foundation of all other kinds of mindfulness. You get that in the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, importantly. Uh, the Buddha says that if you're aware of your body, all other virtues uh, naturally unfold. Because they don't naturally unfold, you have to make them naturally unfold. But they, they uh, implicitly unfold, naturally unfold. So, th- th- there, are, there, are, there are a number of considerations here. Of course, the, the mindfulness of the body brings you into contact with absolutely direct experience unmediated by thought and concept. You feel when you touch something. When there's a pain in your guts, there's a pain in your guts. It's not an idea. When you feel exhilarated from you know, exercise, the endorphins are spinning around inside you. Well, you feel that sort of sense of well-being and ease. It's a direct experience. It's not a thought. So the, the, the uh, kaya uh, uh, gati, gata sati, Mindfulness connected with the body in the first place puts you in touch with your most basic and direct experience, which is not doubtable, dubitable. It, it is what it is. It's not constructed or only constructed at the level of the sense mechanisms, not at the level of uh, interpretation. Only interpretation as built in rather than interpretation as added on. So... Uh, Mindfulness of the body, in that sense, is, is absolutely primary to uh, your spiritual endeavour. There's a lot that one could say here, but I just wanted to bow to that and uh, leave you to you know, link that up with other reflections I'm sure you've had. But what I want to focus more on is this looking after the well-being of the body, the health of the body, so that you, you, you look after what you eat, so that you eat wisely, that uh, doesn't mean you don't enjoy it, uh, and you eat, you can eat well but wisely, because the effect of the, the, the what you eat on your mind is quite direct. the The two lower niyamas strongly affect manuniyama. So, for instance, if you overeat, you feel heavy, you feel dull, you feel sleepy. If you eat overeat before you meditate, you can't meditate. If you eat badly, if you don't get enough nourishment, your mind doesn't work properly. If you eat um, you know, a lot of spicy food, why have you woken up? <laughs> um, you know, your stomach is often a bit overactive and that affects your, your uh, meditation and so on. In fact, the Buddha said one of the key ingredients to successful meditation is a good digestion. Think about it. So that, that uh, what you put into your body uh, affects your mind. Come on, all you 60s, well, as you know, you've put things into your, into your body that strongly affected your minds. Not just the 60s, I think. We know very directly what happens when you have that spliff or do- drop that tab. I don't know what the newer drugs are these days. I think it's something called ecstasy or something like that. <laughs> it's very passé. So I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to ask the cognoscenti. Michael and no idea what we're talking about. Ganja. <laughs> yeah, you, you know the way in which what you, you take in affects your mind. We need to take more seriously the effect of the body on the mind in that sort of lower sense. The way in which... Uh, the mind functions. You need to look after your, your health uh, in the form of exercise. People are much better in our movement these days, I think, generally. 
But I think that uh, some form of uh, physical exercise that has a somewhat refining effect, especially as you get older, is, is really quite significant. I won't say you can't make progress without it. But I think that uh, when you meditate, what you come across is a lot of tensions that are stored in the body. Psychological tensions which become built in in the way that you stand, the way that you move, the way that you hold yourself. And if you engage in more subtle kinds of, of exercise, as well as more vigorous ones like going for a run and playing football and all that, but in addition to that, uh, something like yoga or Tai Chi or something like that, that really helps you to get your energies flowing. I think this will promote a, a sense of mental well-being. It, it, it's, you know, a, 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 a researched fact that uh, the, the, the state of your body affects strongly your sense of mental well-being, which then provides the basis for your karmic efforts. So you need to take as much responsibility for your bodily state as you can. Of course, there's a point on which you can't go. Illness will happen. And uh, we may have hereditary defects, we may have uh, you know, just genetic predispositions and so forth, which are not in our power to, uh, to avoid. But what you can, you, do, you deal with. What you can't, you put up with, if you see what I mean. You, you, you endure in as mindful and insightful a way as you possibly can. But I think integration means taking responsibility for the body because of its effects on the mind. And I've come to think, uh, as uh, age begins to loom in front of me, okay, <laughs> that I wish I'd put more into this earlier. I've always been quite keen on exercise, but I wish I'd done more of a, a subtle kind of exercise to deal with more subtle energies in the body. Fortunately, not too late. But uh, what about manoniema more directly? This, this, uh, this given of our mental functioning. We're given, if you like, a mind. Of course, it's not really a mind. We're given a set of processes, a, a conscious mental processes, which well, you know, we didn't ask for. They just happened. They were given, as it were. They emerged. Well, we won't start exploring the possible explanations of the uh, origins of consciousness. But, you know, as far as we're concerned, we just as it were, realise we're aware and that we've got certain processes, feelings, thoughts, urges, itches, etc. And uh, it's very particular. The, 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 the kind of mind that I've got, using mind in this very broad sense, is well, different from the, the kind of mind that you've got. Of course, it'll be more like some of you than others. But basically, it's like all of yours. But we differ quite considerably in what you might call our characters. Our character, I believe, is to a large extent or to a, to a substantial degree, as it were, built in. Of course it modifies as life goes on, but it's to some extent structured. You know, well known, isn't it, that uh, uh, in this room I'm talking to all of you and you'll all be listening to me in subtly different ways. Uh, some of you will be particularly kind of connecting with concepts that I'm using and maybe thinking you wish they were more intelligently put or something like that, or how brilliant they are, whatever. But you'll be connecting more with the conceptual flow. Some of you will be connecting more with the feeling of what I'm, sa I'm saying, either with my feeling or with your own responses. You know, sometimes you can see that. You're talking to people and you can see them going in because something you said has sort of sparked something off in them, a sort of range of feelings. Uh, some imagination will be at, at play. They're having pictures in their minds. We're all doing it differently. And, you know, one of the great skills of, of speaking, which I don't claim to have much gift at, is being able to speak to a wide range of different uh, approaches and temperaments. You, you, we've all got our biases and you need to be careful that you round those out when you're speaking to a, a random audience like this. Are you random? I don't know. So, 
I, I've come to think that I wish I'd paid more attention to understanding what I was like, if you see what I mean, much earlier on. Of course I did to some extent. But uh, I think that karmic responsibility means taking responsibility for what you're like in a kind of neutral, innocent sense. You know, I'm more inclined to approach the world through thinking. Well, I need to take responsibility for that and recognise not everybody's like that and that there are other ways of approaching things. And that I indeed need to have those other ways of approaching things. So we need to, to sort of discover ourselves in the world. And I think a lot of the problems that we get in our social life is through inadequate self-understanding and becoming uh, defensive about what is simply a matter of fact. Do you know what I mean? You, I don't have to apologise for being, as it were, predominantly a thinking type, to use vast overgeneralizations. I don't have to apologise. I have to take responsibility for it and use it intelligently. Put it at the service uh, of my own higher purpose and of our collective purpose. So I think a very important part of, uh, of joining the order is taking responsibility for what you are imposing upon the order by your entry into it, to put it rhetorically. By your entry into it, you are giving us your particular bundle of samskaras, your particular character. Thank you very much. Uh, we're very grateful for it, but please take full responsibility for it and don't go bashing other people over the head with it or, you know, withdrawing from us and not, not contributing it, if you see what I mean, because that's another tendency. I think as, as an, an, an order it will be successful to, to the degree that we each recognise we're conditioned beings with particular uh, bundles of samskaras, particular configurations under manuniyama as well as bija and utuniyama. Karma means taking responsibility for who we are in this sense. And the more active responsibility you take on, the more leadership you take on, the more you teach, uh, the more you guide people, the more you enter into Kalyanamitrata relationships, the more you need to take responsibility for that. It can be quite sort of almost unfair. You know, in India... I have to take responsibility for being a white Englishman. It's a terrible burden, the white man's burden. In, a, in other words, the fact that I'm a white Englishman has a certain impact. By and large, not one of people reacting to it, oddly, uh, despite the colonial past, but of, of people giving me too much deference. So I have to take responsibility for that. It's not my fault. There are other situations in which something different can obtain. I remember... When I, first, uh, when, the, when I was first involved with the order and it was first evolving, we developed a centre in, in Glasgow which mainly consisted of, of working class Glaswegians who were, as you know, a, a completely different species <laughs> to uh, an English public schoolboy at the very, very least. And um, I realised that my presence had a certain impact before I even opened my mouth and even more when I did in, open it. Because I was not only the class enemy, I was the national enemy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I felt thoroughly indignant and upset and, um, you know, un unfair. Oh, well, you think, well, wait a minute. You know, they've got that particular set of samskaras. I've got this set of samskaras. How do we meet? How do we get beyond that? How do I take responsibility for this is my history? I don't mean that I have to... Uh, Apologise for the Highland clearances. Actually, my ancestors were cleared in the Highland in the clearances too. I've got uh, uh, ancestors who fought on both sides at Culloden, because it's mainly. Anyways, <laughs> you need to take responsibility for just these sort of facts of conditioning, and uh, use them intelligently for the benefit of something greater. That is part of our karmic responsibility. I don't believe has ever been quite talked of in this way before. Maybe I've, I've just missed it, is what really happens. You think you've got a brilliant new insight, and everyone says, oh yeah, we've been thinking that for ages, and so we wish you'd realise. We need to take responsibility for those niyamas 
as they are. Look after them and use them well. Because they are the vehicle through which we can discover this decent, deep, deeper sense of meaning and purpose. And we can, we can bring that deeper sense of meaning and purpose into the world more fully for the benefit of others. So integration, I, I believe, uh, is a very deep principle. Of course, it goes even deeper than this. It goes even into integrating uh, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth. But that's a topic for another day. For the time being, I hope I've given you a flavour, uh, perhaps not particularly well organised, a flavour of the, uh, the scope of this topic of, of integration. And particularly a sense of it as not merely <coughs> about being mindful about what goes on, important as that is, but of this deeper sense of, of purpose, of meaning, of uh, something unfolding, something revealing itself through you, which is ultimately connected with your going for refuge to the three jewels. And that you have said, has become conscious enough in you for you to commit yourself fully to it. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 